continue examining this particular prayer that Paul and his companions in Rome were making for the Colossian believers. It is a wonderful example of how we should be praying for one another. Um, in this particular section of prayer we're going to be looking at today, we're going to uncover several very deep and wonderful truths about salvation that I think should even drive us into a greater thanksgiving for God's amazing mercy and grace, which is extended to us as simple people. By way of review, let's kind of go back over where we are with the context here. Paul has written to the church in Colossae, and the reason is, is he's received a full report from Epaphras, a man from Colossae, and probably the one that has taken the gospel there. And Paul's become aware of some very serious issues in the church. He's going to spend the first half of the book of Colossians correcting theological issues, heresies that are now being proclaimed there, the last half of the book. He's going to be dealing with uh, their conduct. How do you actually demonstrate Christ in your life? What should they be living like? What manner of life? But Paul also begins this letter of Colossians, though, with thanksgiving. And that's because Paul, even though he's going to have to do correction, keeps in mind the bigger picture. He understands that God has done a wonderful work in the Colossians. They've responded well to the presentation of the gospel given to them. They've responded with faith. They are increasing and being strengthened and growing in that faith. And a practical demonstration was their love for one another and for all the saints. And so he... He breaks out beginning with thanksgiving. This is our wonderful God. This is what he has done. And that's a good reminder for us that when even we're dealing with people, even when we have to confront them and admonish them about some sin that has come into their life, keep in mind the bigger picture. God has and is doing great things even in that person's life. Your going to them is going to be one of the great things. At least it should be if they'll respond correctly and walk with the Lord again. Give thanksgiving to God for what he has already done and what we know he will do because he's given us his promises. Even when we may have to admonish someone, Paul's example here is a wonderful uh, one for us to follow. In the next section of the letter, verses 9 through 14, Paul is going to uh, reveal to them the nature and the content of their prayers what those in Rome were praying for, those in Colossae. Follow along as I read. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14, and then we'll concentrate on verses 12 through 14. Paul says they were praying this way. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, the reason they're praying is because Epaphras has told them what was going on. The nature of their prayer was that it was unceasing. They were praying, the word there actually means without hindrance. They were without hindrance because they had a consciousness of of God and of people. They are aware of what God was doing, and so his hand is at work. They can give thanksgiving for that, and they also know that the needs the Colossians are going to have can only be met in God. We've got to remember that, too. Our needs are only met in God. And so they are going to give thanks. They're going to offer general um, prayers, and they're going to also have specific requests 
for the Colossians in, uh, in keeping with the, the things that were going on there whenever they thought of them. And that was the manner in which they were praying. They were asking, their major request we find is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In fact, that's keeping what Paul's theme of the letter is in 128, of desiring to present every man complete in Christ. He wanted that for them. They were praying that the Colossians be permeated with a full knowledge of the will of God, and they'd also have spiritual wisdom and understanding so they can apply that knowledge in life. Knowledge without wisdom is just educated foolishness. We need to apply it, so wisdom and understanding are vital. They needed the wisdom to apply it and the understanding to discern between true and false. And the Colossians were struggling in those areas. That's the reason for that particular prayer. As a result of that, if that was going to be fulfilled in them, they had a full understanding of God, then they should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to please Him in all respects. That is the, uh, the desire that's within this prayer. Their manner of conduct in life should be in keeping with the calling that the Lord has called us with, a manner that is reflective of Him. The prayer then goes on to express four characteristics to demonstrate this walking in a worthy manner. The first being fruitful in every good work. Fruitful in every good work. When the Holy Spirit controls our lives, it's going to be seen in both our manner of conduct and in the good deeds themselves that are going to cause others to glorify Him. That's what our Lord asked us to do. Let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works. That what? That men may see them and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That should be the fruit of it if we're walking in a manner worthy of our Lord. Second, such a walk with God is going to result in increasing knowledge of God as the believer continues to mature. Third, the Lord's strength is going to be seen in the the disciples of Jesus being enabled to face both difficult circumstances and difficult people and be joyful in it. Why? Because as Romans 5 and James 1 tells us, that very trial, that tribulation, brings us to maturity. It forces us to rely upon Him more, and we mature in Christ. That's the goal. And finally, this proper walk with the Lord should result in us giving thanks to God for all that He has done. The humility necessary to be saved should continue on in the life of a disciple, that it becomes reflective in everything we do. No one is going to repent of their sin without being first poor in spirit. That's the beginning of the Beatitudes, isn't it? And what does those poor in spirit gain? The kingdom of heaven. Not only that, but we find that God has opposed the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5.5. So this prayer then points out four reasons for thankfulness to God, Colossians 1.12-14. 1, 12 through 14. The first is that God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the first reason. Second reason we should give thanks, He delivered us from the domain of darkness. Third reason to give thanks to God, He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And fourth, in the Son we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All these reasons are related to our salvation. And this morning, we're going to look at these four reasons in greater detail so we'll have a greater knowledge of God's will. And having a greater knowledge of God's will, we should be able to walk better in a manner worthy of our Lord and in pleasing Him, shouldn't we? We want to understand that. We're also going to see God's hand at work so we can give Him proper thanksgiving for what He has done. 
Now, the first reason that Paul says we should be giving thanks to God the Father as a consequence of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is that he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, the hope of a heavenly inheritance is an important part of believing the gospel, isn't it? In fact, Paul commented on that in his giving thanksgiving back in verse 5. He was praising God because the Colossians had a hope laid up for themselves in heaven because they had previously heard the word of truth, the gospel. That's verse 5. He is now expressing in this prayer that they would be doing the same in demonstrating or as a demonstration of their own walking properly. Thanksgiving is the proper response when we consider all that God has done in saving us from our wretched, sinful condition. He then saved us from the sin, its consequences in the present, and its eternal consequences, and in addition, moved us forward and adopted us unto his family. We're his children because of that. We are his saints, his holy ones. Now, Paul's description of God's action in these two verses should remove all human pride that we can or somehow could make ourselves worthy to receive God's favor. We can't do it. The ancient heresy of Pelagius is still strong. It runs in various degrees through quite a few Christian religions. At its core, this idea that Pelagius had put forward, going back into the 4th century, is that man is good enough somehow that he can, by his own efforts, his own actions, gain a place in heaven for himself. Now, there's different lines of it, but that's the core idea. Some groups teach that man is good enough from birth to achieve heaven on their own. Others will add some sort of religious ritual to deal with some idea of sin that they have. Uh, For example, a lot of them have baptism. Baptism removes Adam's sin, so now that your goodness can shine forth, and now you can walk with God and earn your way to heaven. That's why Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and actually quite a few others, baptizing infants is so important. That's the key for them to be saved, is baptism, a ritual. Roman Catholicism, of course, adds in a lot of other sacraments. Each sacrament you partake of is supposed to give you additional grace by which you can be saved. You have actions by which you save yourself. Those of you who've come from that background, you're familiar with that. But even many who call themselves evangelicals have fallen into the same theological trap. I run run into them all the time. They have taken what should be a response of faith and made it into an action of salvation. When you're listening to salvation testimonies, pay attention to what you hear. Often we will hear testimonies that emphasize what they have done to achieve salvation, not emphasizing what God has done to grant them salvation. They will say things like, I was baptized. I came forward at the altar call. I raised my hand when the evangelist said, every head bowed, every, every eye closed. If you're responding, raise your hand. I see it. You've been there. You've seen it. I raised my hand. You have those who say, I'm saved because I prayed the sinner's prayer. Now, all of those can be good. All of them can be legitimate expressions of genuine belief. But there's still a problem because they're all filled with the I disease. I, 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 I. I did this, I did that, etc. That is not giving glory to God. Glory to God is, God saved me. 
Jesus Christ did this for me. God granted to me his grace and his mercy. That's the emphasis. So we need to be careful because it, it comes out all over the place. We want to glorify God for what he has done in saving us from our wretched, sinful condition. Now, I was at the fair on Friday. We were, Dave and I were there for about five hours. There weren't a whole lot of people that came in during that time, but I was a little taken aback. Now, normally people, they come in and we give the good person test. Basically, go over the Ten Commandments and try and use that as a means to point out to them, you are not a good person, not by God's standard. In fact, you're in trouble by God's standard. And it's normal for people to walk in initially thinking, hey, I'm a good person, because people who are bad people don't want to take that test. They know the answer. They don't want it. They want to prove, yeah, I am a good person. So they come in thinking, I'm good enough. But what I was surprised at, every single person we talked to Friday, and the ones you talked to as well, when they left, they still thought they were good enough, even though we pointed out to them, you are failing to meet God's standard. You are breaking his commandments. You are sinful. Well, I'm still good enough. That was a little surprising to me. Normally, they will at least admit, I'm sinful, even if they don't want to deal with it. But these people, all of them, that particular morning and early that afternoon, they were convinced their own minds that their good is going to outweigh their bad, and therefore God is going to welcome them into heaven. Nunizio, who I talked to, he was insistent on that, um, even though I caught him in quite a few things. They think they're qualified on their own. Paul strongly disagrees, even in this prayer that he's making for the Colossians. You're not good enough. Nobody is. Paul specifically points out here that it is God the Father that qualifies us to be among those that receive his inheritance. The verb used here, hikanao, uh, means to make fit, to be sufficient, to adequate, and hence qualified. It's an aorist active participle, meaning that the Father has taken action upon the people he has so qualified. You didn't take the action. He took the action and put it upon you. Do you see the difference? People cannot make themselves sufficient because all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before our holy God. And any and every sin then condemns us. The soul that sins must die, Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 18.4. Romans 3.23 says that everybody sins, is sinning, is actually active. We are all sinning and falling short of the glory of God. Currently, Psalm 14, 2 and 3, they are all corrupt. None does good, not even one. Every human is completely unqualified to receive anything from God except his just judgment and condemnation. That's the only thing we've qualified ourselves for. Only God himself can qualify us for his blessings, and Paul will explain in verses 13 and 14 how God has made sinful humans sufficient and adequate in righteousness to receive those blessings. But what exactly is it that God has qualified us for? He's the only one that can do it. What has he qualified us for? The phrase Paul uses here is to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The particular Greek words here, meris uh, means portion or share, kleros uh, means lot, reflects the inheritance that Israel received in the casting lots and dividing up the land. Remember, the land is conquered, and they cast lots about who would get what portion of the land. That's what this phrase is reflecting. 
the casting the lots, according to Proverbs 16, 33, is determined by God. God determined which tribe gets which section of land. God has determined for each Christian what we will inherit from him. Well, what do we inherit if we are followers of Jesus? What do we gain from it? Well, there's several aspects for inheritance. First and foremost is eternal life. Over in Matthew 19.29, Jesus said, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times as much, and here's the key, he's talking to disciples, and shall inherit eternal life. That's our inheritance. Keep in mind that when the Bible speaks of eternal life, it is not speaking about length of life. Those who are evil will also continue through eternity in existence. They would not like to do that, but they will. Scripture describes the judgment and condemnation as eternal, Matthew 25, 41. Eternal life reflects knowing God and having an eternal existence in his presence, which is our blessed hope. That's throughout scriptures as well. John 17, 3, Matthew 25, 34, 1 John 5, 20, Titus 2, 13. That's our hope. Now, related to this is a phrasing used in Hebrews 1, 14 that speaks of angels rendering service to or for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, reflecting the same thing. A very appropriate idea, especially when we remember that children inherit and those who are saved, those who have received and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been right to be called the children of God. We inherit because we're children of him by adoption, Ephesians 1.5. The nature of this inheritance, according to 1 Peter 1.4, is that it's imperishable. It is undefiled. It is not going to fade away. It is reserved in heaven. Now, that's part of the concept as well. It's reserved in, in heaven. Um, And it's guaranteed for us. That's the next verse, uh, Ephesians uh, 1.14. Guaranteed by the Holy Spirit who is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now all this means that it's an inheritance we have now in one respect because it belongs to us, but we do not have the full access to all of its benefits yet. Why? Well, as 1 Corinthians 15.50 makes it clear, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We have an inheritance that is current and future. In the future, when we receive our glorified bodies, we gain the full benefit of everything. And we look forward to that. I look forward to it. Another aspect of our inheritance is the kingdom of God in the millennial reign of Jesus, on this earth, Revelation 20, verse 6, tells us that those who are part of the first resurrection are going to be priests of God and Christ and are going to reign with him for a thousand years. That's part of the inheritance. That's actually the fulfillment of what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, that the meek would inherit the earth. The meek are those who are qualified by God. Why are they meek? It's because of what God has been doing in them. And multiple scriptures make it very clear that the unrighteous do not receive any part of any of these kinds of inheritances. It doesn't belong to them. It is inheritance only for saints, and they are those who are called out by God to be separated from the world to himself. That's what a saint is. That's what it means to be a saint. You're called out by God, separated unto him. 
Now, Paul adds the additional description here, the saints in the light. And that's making a very sharp contrast between God's saints and those who are still entrapped in the darkness of this world. The term light itself is often used throughout the scriptures to describe purity and holiness and the manner of life of those who are followers of Jesus. For example, over in 1 John 1, 5 through 7, the apostle there explains this and he he uses the term light. And this is the message, verse 5, that we... This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. You can see the way that the light is often used. Holiness, righteousness, proper conduct because of what Christ has done for us. He's cleansed us. Now, the first part of verse 13 explains how God has qualified us to be saints. It also reveals why man cannot save himself. It says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Just as light often is used as an analogy of purity and holiness, darkness is used as an analogy of sin and unrighteousness. The reality is that without God's intervention, we are trapped in darkness, we can't get our, our, out on our, our own efforts. The word for domain here, exousia, refers to authority, to power, to control. And we've got to remember that those without Christ are blinded by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and so that they are all trapped in the devil's domain. 1 John 5.19, as Ephesians, which is just over from where you are there in Colossians, In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the apostle explains, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That was your state. But he goes beyond that and he talks about what we did do, what was our conduct, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Our very decisions, our very practices, our conduct of life confirmed our own sinfulness and our love of darkness. That's why we're trapped. The word delivered, Ramai, speaks of being rescued and being set free. That is what God does. Now, man is naturally proud. I haven't met a naturally humble man yet. God has to really work on you to make you humble. And sometimes, men, he gives you a wife to help the process. Okay? That's okay, ladies. (laughs) He gave you a husband to help, too. Okay? We're all that way. We're not naturally humble. We're naturally proud. And we do not like to think of ourselves as being controlled by anything. We're autonomous. We do what we want. That's not true. We're slaves of sin. John 8, 34. Why? Because we're obedient to sin. We obey it apart from Christ. Romans six sixteen. And such a slave cannot free himself because he loves the darkness instead of light. That's John 3, 19. That's why they won't listen to Christ. I love my darkness. I don't want my sin exposed. 
That's why even the fair, most people, thousands of them, very few walk into the booth and take a good person test. They don't want to know whether they're good or bad. They suspect they're bad and they do not want it exposed. That's why they react so much when you do what is right. Your righteousness exposes their evil and they respond negatively toward you. That's the nature of man apart from Christ. So such a slave can't free himself. He loves his darkness. And so it is God that had to take action if we're going to be delivered from the domain of darkness. And in order to rescue us from the slavery, God had to break first the power of the previous master. And Jesus did exactly that. He broke the power of the devil when he became a man and he lived a sinless life. He died as a substitute sacrifice for sin and bodily rose from the grave and that broke the power of Satan. He has no more legal right over you. However, breaking the power of a previous master is not enough to free the slaves. You can break the power of the master and say you have no more right over them, but if the slaves continue to obey the previous master, in all practical terms, who are they still slaves to? The previous master. And so something else had to be done. God had to enable us to be obedient to a new master, to be obedient to righteousness. And Jesus does this through the preaching of the gospel because that is what opens the eyes of the blind that they may see and respond in faith. In Acts 26, 18, Paul is recounting his commission from Christ on preaching the gospel. And then he says he was commissioned to preach the gospel and, quote, open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. No wonder Paul is praying this prayer. His prayer is simply to have the commission that Jesus has given him fulfilled. And so we preach the gospel. Well, God not only rescued us from the enslavement to Satan and sin and freed us from his domain, but he also did something even more important to us. It's one thing to be free, but what if you're free and you don't know where to go? You don't know how to go. What are you going to do? You're going to have to be transferred to some other place. And that's what he did. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Rescue and transfer go hand in hand, but each places an emphasis on a different aspect of the total action that's taken. Deliverance, rescue, focuses on the actions taken to free you from bondage itself. The chains are broken. But you're not going to be left there where the jail is. The chains are broken, but now you're going to be taken out and transferred off to a different place where you really can live in freedom. So you were in the domain of Satan. You were under his power, his control. His bondage is broken, and you're transferred to the kingdom of the Son. Transfer of mythistomy focuses on that. The word is used in 1 Corinthians 13, 2 of moving mountains. If you're going to move a mountain, you've got to put what you move someplace, right? That's the idea. What is removed from one place is placed somewhere else. When Israel fell to Assyria, the people were removed and they are transferred to other lands. So having been freed from the devil's power, God would remove us from the devil's dominion and make us part of a different kingdom, that of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. But now we have a question. How is it that God makes someone a part of his kingdom? 
How does that transfer occur? How does that happen in practical terms? Now remember, our inheritance in, as saints includes being part of God's kingdom. So the transfer is the same way. John 1.12 states it this way, but as many as received him, to them he, became, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe upon his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The transfer occurs by means of adoption into God's family. We receive the adoption as sons, so we're no longer slaves, but sons who call God Abba. We call him Father. And if sons, then we're heirs through God. We're part of a different kingdom, different rights, different privileges, and wonderfully new blessings. Now, what the Apostle John says there in the first chapter of his gospel matches what Paul is talking about here in Colossians in his prayer. This transfer of kingdom is something done by God according to his will and not something man did for himself. It doesn't come to you by genealogy. It's not a blood. It doesn't come because you wanted it. The fact is, is in your natural uh, wretched state of sin, you don't want it. We love the darkness. That's why we're entrapped in his, his kingdom. It doesn't come because someone else wants it for you. Not of blood, nor the will of man, nor of your own will, but of God. You're adopted because God wills it. He desires it. Well, how does that work out in practical terms in the life of an individual? Well, this is amazing, and it glorifies God. His character is astounding, and that's why we should give thanks to him. First thing is that God is long-suffering, and praise him that he is long-suffering. He is not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. And so he puts up with you. He puts up with me while we are yet sinners and against him. He puts up with us. And then he continues. One of the things we pray for when witnessing is the Holy Spirit would bring conviction because that's what he's sent to do, John 16, 8, to bring conviction of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That may people need to know what their real standing is, that righteousness is only in Christ himself, and that God's judgment is going to come upon the devil and all of his followers. So you need to change. And then God extends his grace by quickening the soul of the individual so that what was dead becomes alive in Jesus, resulting in repentance and belief in the personal work of Jesus, so that they will trust his promises and seek to follow his commands, as Ephesians 2, 5 tells us. We were in our trespass and sin. We were dead, and we were made alive together with Christ. We were quickened, as the King James puts it. So by God's grace, we are saved through faith in his Son, which is reckoned to us as righteousness, Romans 4, 5. We are therefore no longer under God's condemnation, we are rescued from Satan's dominion and we're transferred to the realm of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's God's work. And he's so gracious to us. In verse 14, Paul makes a final point of reason for giving thanks to God. And here he places the emphasis on the means by which we were qualified to share in this inheritance. Deliver from the domain of darkness and transfer to the kingdom of the Son. How did it happen? What is the means? There may be some steps, which I just explained, of what God is doing, but how? What is the means of it? He says, in the beloved Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's also an additional reason why we can't earn our own salvation. 
because we can't get, do this for ourselves. Salvation can only occur if there's forgiveness. You can't be saved without it. Sin refers to all transgression of God's commandments from the very least to the very greatest. The word itself, harmatia, refers to missing the mark of shooting an arrow. You miss the bullseye. You didn't hit the bullseye, you sinned. You either meet God's standard of perfection, no error of any kind, no unrighteousness of any kind, or you're in sin. It's that simple. Perfection is what is required. And the wages of sin is death. It was Adam and Eve's failure to keep the one prohibition that plunged all mankind into a sinful state, wasn't it? And we have all, in like practice, followed his example. It's not Adam's sin that condemns us. We do it ourselves. We simply follow his example and sin against God. We do not meet his standard. The result for Adam and Eve was kicked out of the garden, and the physical process of death began, and they no longer had that intimate fellowship with God. And humanity ever since has been striving to get back. We want to get back there. We want to have, again, that kind of relationship with God and not be under his condemnation. We want his blessings. And while God is long-suffering and patient with man, even the point is Acts 17.30, Paul had expressed to those on Mars Hill that he was willing to overlook their times of ignorance. So he's not bringing about justice swiftly, which we're grateful for, otherwise we'd all be in hell right now but he is patient and long-suffering, he is not going to continue that forever. He eventually is going to judge, and he will do so without partiality, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And man cannot escape this reality on his own because there's nothing he can do to alleviate his offenses against God and make things right. There's nothing you can do to appease God. What can you offer him? Because even our good deeds performed very well in contrast to the holiness of God, our creator, he says there's filthy rags. Even our best things can't meet his standard. So how do you begin to appease him, much less try and take care of all the past stuff? Our only hope is to find some way in which God is going to grant us forgiveness. Forgiveness, uh, thesis, is, uh, means a pardon for our wrongs against him. And unless there's some means by which he's going to release us from our guilt and dismiss the charges against us, we all will pay the price currently and in eternity. In the present of the consequences of sin just in life and the mess it makes of things, and eternity being shut out from his presence and paying the penalty of eternal destruction, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Something's got to be able to bring about forgiveness, a pardon. We need a pardon. Now, some people, they're not concerned about it. They really aren't. They're self-righteous. They think God's future judgment doesn't matter. I'm good enough. That's the folks we had at the fair, David and I did on, on Friday. They're good enough. I already pointed out that's a false belief. Nanizio did better than others. According to his admission, he, he actually kept eight of the Ten Commandments. He said he hadn't lied since he was a kid. Yeah, right. But I, hadn't, I had to keep from putting down on the paper of all of his lusting after other women lest his wife come. So that tells me he probably hasn't been honest with his wife about where his eyes are roving. But he, said, he just insists that he was good enough, so he's not worried about the future. God's going to let him in. He's good enough. Some avoid present worry and concern. They simply deny there is a God. <laughs> that takes care of it, doesn't it? Well, that's an ostrich putting its head in the sand. Others refuse to say that God's going to judge. He's just a God of love. They forget he's also a God of justice, holiness, and righteousness. 
such peace is going to be short-lived because all of it's going to disappear when God calls an account for their souls. Many people think God is just going to continue to be long-suffering and just overlook their sins like it's currently happening. But God's goodness and kindness should be a cause for them to repent, Romans 2 tells us. It should bring us to repentance, but they're indifferent about it. We'll just continue on the way we are. The reality is they're storing up God's wrath upon themselves, and God is going to render to every man according to his deeds. The very things you think are going to balance out the scales are going to condemn you. The reality is expressed in Hebrews 9.27, in which the writer there declares it's appointed for men to die once and then judgment. You don't escape it. There is a God, he is going to judge, and he cannot overlook sin because he is good and he is just. He would not be good if he overlooked the people who have sinned against you. Would he? Would it be just to overlook the sin of someone who murdered your mother? I don't think so. Would it be just to overlook the sin who committed atrocities and decimated all your relatives and you alone survive? Would it be good to say, eh, it's okay, it's no big deal? That wouldn't be good. Would it be just to change his mind at the last minute and just be arbitrary? Yeah, you broke the law, but yeah, I like your beard. You know, you, you did a good job with it, so I'll let you in. That's Allah. Allah is the arbitrary one. Our God is not. Our God is consistent with his character all the way up and down the line. And because he is good, because he is just, there must be punishment for sin because he declared it to be so. Right from the beginning, right? What did he tell Adam and Eve? If you do this, you're going to die. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins is going to die. The price has to be paid. How then do we do it? We can't do it ourselves. We're dead. We can't do it for someone else because we're guilty ourselves to die. And that's why redemption is so necessary. God cannot grant forgiveness unless justice is carried out. We must be redeemed in a way that satisfies justice and grants us forgiveness. That's redemption. That's what redemption is all about. The word redemption, apolutrosis, is one of several biblical terms that express different aspects of what Jesus did on the cross, that's work on the cross. Sacrifice is one of those words, and it expresses the price of sin. A blood sacrifice had to be offered. Offering itself speaks of the voluntary nature of that sacrifice. It was given. Propitiation speaks of the turning away of God's wrath that's against us. And let's face it, without Christ, every single person is under God's condemnation. His wrath is upon us. Romans 1, 18, uh, 16, 17, 18, or 18, 19, 20, rather. Justification speaks of our acquittal in the courtroom on the basis of what Christ has done. Redemption speaks of the price that is paid, and see how Paul ties all these together. Redemption is the price paid to release us from bondage. It's the ransom price. It is by redemption that God, through Jesus, breaks the power of the devil's claim on us, removes us from the devil's dominion, and transfers us to his own kingdom. That's redemption. The price of sin is high, but Jesus willingly gave his life as the means of redemption to purchase us for the Father. Now, if we're purchased, we don't belong to ourselves, do we? We belong to him. And because justice is met, 
then as Romans 3.24 puts it, we can be justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification requires redemption as well, and it's in Christ that that is done. We are pardoned. Because we're justified and redeemed, we are pardoned. And because of pardon, then Psalm 103.12 is fulfilled. Our sins are cast away from us as far as the east is from the west. There's nothing farther from that. The price is paid. Pardon is granted. Bondage is broken. And I'm free in Christ. I'm transferred to his kingdom. So redemption allows us to be forgiven. Redemption delivers us from the domain of darkness, transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Redemption qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. No wonder we should be giving thanks to God. No wonder Paul marks this down as one of those characteristics of someone who's walking worthy of the Lord in a manner pleasing to him, who's bearing fruit in every good work, increasing the knowledge of God, being strengthened in God's glorious might, to be able to endure difficult circumstances and difficult people with joy. That's what it's about. That was his prayer for them. All this is predicated on the idea of being filled with a full knowledge of God and being able to apply it with spiritual wisdom and understanding. That was Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And that is why we should follow this example, and that is how we should pray for one another, even while we reflect and give thanks to God for what he's done for us in Christ. It's very appropriate that this morning that we have communion because we've been dealing with the reality of what God has done for us and bringing about our salvation, our redemption in Christ. That's what communion's about, reflecting on what he has done for us. We didn't do it for ourselves. He did it for us. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us to be prepared for this, to approach it in the right way. The Corinthian church was not. The result, some were sick. Some had even had been taken home to be with the Lord. They died because they were completely out of control in what they were doing. He wants us to think seriously through this because in partaking of communion, we show forth the Lord's death until his return. We proclaim to others, this is our belief. He died for me. I have been redeemed by his blood. And so there's a soberness to it as we reflect that the price of his death was because of my sin and your sin. And yet there's a joy as well with knowing as, and yet he loved me that much to do so. It's astounding, isn't it? Can we ever give our God thanks enough for what he's done for us? I want to give you a few minutes to just prepare your...